0: Soup Pot. My name is Aaron. And I'm Rustin. Every two weeks, Russ and I get together to discuss topics in the field of ecology, natural history, and evolution. And this week, Russ and I are going to be discussing conservation success stories back from the brink.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. You sounded like you were excited about this one. So
0: well, everyone should be.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's definitely more of a feel good episode. But you especially seem like you had something good for
0: this one. I have something in mind, but I was more so just excited to see what we're doing right as humanity, you know? I want a little victory.
1: Yeah, you, you want a nice happy ending. That's worth having every now and then. So
0: I believe I am up first. Yes, sir. So I'll be discussing, I think, one of the more well-known conservation success stories, at least for American animals, you've probably heard of it, the black-footed ferret. yes. Yay! Yeah, yeah, these guys are classic, but there's a lot of cool stuff about them. So, I'll go over its almost extinction, conservation efforts, and where it stands right now. The whole nine yards. Hit me. So, first off, what is a black-footed ferret? Black-footed ferrets, they're also known as the American polecat, is a small predatory mammal. They're about 20 inches long and weigh about 2 pounds or half a meter and one kilogram. And they have an elongated tube-like body and somewhat stubby legs. I think most people can picture what a ferret is. If not, look up a picture. They're fun little animals. of look like fur snakes. I would also
1: just like to address the name polecat, which I know is very widely used, but to me just sounds like some kind of 1940s colloquial name for a stripper.
0: Like... <laughs> the, pole, the the polecat?
1: Like, ah, she's, she's one of them polecats, see? Like...
0: That that's more of a
1: 1920s to me. That's 1940s. The accent was pretty much unchanged for like 30 years.
0: <laughs> All right. I'm thinking a uh, boardwalk empire, that sort of thing. Okay. Prohibition era going down to the speakeasies <laughs> See the old polecats cats working their joints. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. See, you get it. <laughs> you get it. Yeah, I get it. Uh, yeah. So these guys just look like ferrets with black feet. Uh, They also have black patterning on their face as well.
1: Yeah, they're really stylish looking, honestly, from what I remember.
0: These guys are in the Mustelid family, and this group contains animals like weasels, minks, badgers, and otters. For the most part, this group consists mainly of smaller carnivorous mammals that have a long body. This body can be good for swimming, like otters, climbing, or getting into burrows, like the black-footed ferret. The scientific name for it is Mustela nigripes, which literally translates to blackfoot weasel. Gotcha.
1: Yeah, that long body plan makes sense because like if you're going to be a larger predator that still has to get into burrows, you can't really get wider. So you're really just forced
0: to get longer. It's the only option. Right. Also, a long body plan is good for a lot of things. It's crazy how you can repurpose it to be good for climbing, burrowing, or swimming. True, true. It's quite versatile. I mean, just look at snakes. They live in so many different habitats, and they're all more or less the same.
1: True. Slight differences in size and various adaptations, but the basic body plan is the same, yeah.
0: So the most important thing to know about these ferrets is their diets are about 90% prairie dogs. Prairie dogs are not actual dogs. They're a Midwest rodent species. These guys are found throughout the prairies and grasslands in the Midwest, and because the bulk of the ferret's diet is prairie dogs, the ferrets used to inhabit the same areas.
1: Yep. Yep. So they're quite reliant on
0: the prairie dogs. Mm-hmm. And we'll come back to this. So throughout history, black footed ferrets have actually been somewhat elusive. So there's evidence of Native Americans using parts of them for medicinal purposes or ceremonies. But after colonization of America, they really weren't on the radar that much. They would occasionally be caught and sold by fur trappers in the 1800s, but it wasn't until 1851 when they were officially documented and described the science. That's pretty late, all things considered. Yeah, definitely, especially for a mammal species. Yeah, really weird for a mammal. Like a bug, I can understand. We're still finding new bugs today. Right. Or especially like an amoeba, but for a mammal, that's, yeah, that's a bit harder to imagine. The only
1: legitimate reason I can think of is that they just spent all their time in burrows so people didn't see them a lot.
0: Yeah, uh for the most part, I think that's it. They do spend most of their time underground. I mean, they live out in these prairies, which most people wouldn't just go out walking around looking for a new animal there, you know? Like walking through a forest, you could understand seeing something, but maybe not a prairie. But there's actually a controversy to these At a point where some people didn't even believe in the ferrets' existence. It wasn't really until, you know, your mid-1800s that we finally accepted. And even then, I'm sure there's still some holdouts.
1: So you're saying that for like 30 years of American history, these were like rodent Bigfoot?
0: Well, they're not rodents. or They're mustelids.
1: Sorry. Polecat Bigfoot?
0: (laughs) And on the contrary, their feet are quite tiny.
1: Okay. Polecat Bigfoot with basically nothing in common with Bigfoot except fur.
0: If I'm being honest, I'm sure your average person did not care about them one way or another.
1: The average person probably doesn't care about Bigfoot one
0: way or another, Aaron. (laughs) Well, if we're basing it off of the 1800s, they probably have bigger fish to fry. Civil War, you know? True, true. Anyway, so even though these guys were elusive, they have a huge, sorry, they had a huge range. I'm talking Midwest... So we're southern Alberta all the way down to New Mexico and Arizona. So huge range, although they've always been somewhat hard to source.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that is quite extensive.
0: And unfortunately, as soon as they were discovered, they were already in decline. Mm, Yeah, that's that's sad. There's many different factors to this. First off is the fur trade, which you might be surprised to learn played a very minor role. Really? Well, I mean, if you think about it, A, these ferrets are hard to source. So there's not a lot of incentive to go out and trap for them. And B, their fur is of much lower value when you compare them to animals like minks or beavers. So most of the fur trappers are probably going to be focusing on more aquatic species because they're going to have much thicker and more valuable fur. Uh,
1: okay. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: Reason number one for their decline is a classic one, habitat loss. Less areas to live in means less animals living there. In particular, a lot of the Midwest was converted for farm or agricultural usage. So we had a lot of farmlands and cattle ranching going on out there. That took up a lot of habitat. Right, right. Of course, later on, you would also get roads and oil fields as well. It also played a role. Another big reason is disease. And these ferrets happen to be incredibly susceptible to so many different diseases So a couple examples, canine distemper virus, which is spread by several animals, including foxes and coyotes, is fatal to ferrets. They're susceptible to rabies, rabbit fever, the human influenza virus, so literally just the flu, and in particular, a bacteria known as Yersinia pestis.
1: So what you're saying is that the black-footed ferrets had like no sick leave left after like a month on the job.
0: Oh no, they used it all up. They're already on short-term disability.
1: Well, you know, when you get a life-threatening disease that kills you, it's hard to come into work.
0: (laughs) On top of this, the ferrets already had a high mortality rate. So one study I found stated that annual mortality ranged from 59% to 83% a year for adults and juveniles. What? Sorry, adults and adolescents. What? That means you're... You're essentially displacing at least half the adult ferrets a year. That's ridiculous. It's really high. Additionally, roughly 50 to 70% of all young and older ferrets die in the fall and winter. Yeah, so their average lifespan is only about a year. Wow,
1: that's ridiculous. Yeah, it's
0: pretty low. I did see they could potentially live up to four years, but these are usually extreme outlier scenarios. A year is about the average.
1: So you're saying that, like, if a dog year is one seventh of a human year, then a ferret year is like one seventieth of a human year?
0: Yeah, pretty much.
1: (laughs) That's really sad. They got to breed like crazy. No, (laughs) no, or not now. (laughs) Well, they did at one point, right?
0: Yeah, they did. Actually, they never had huge litters. They only had about three to five offspring on average. How does this population survive? Well, like I said, they have one big thing that's really working against them. But I do have to say having a high mortality rate is not necessarily a bad thing. For example, there's many animals with really high mortality rates, but aren't anywhere close to going extinct. So think of like any small schooling fish like anchovies or sardines.
1: Sure, sure. But those are species that produce a lot of offspring and also reach sexual maturity very quickly. I don't get that
0: impression from these ferrets. Well, the sexual maturity, yeah, they do reach it quickly. If they're only living about a year, I'm pretty sure they'd be sexually mature in a couple months, really. The ferret life is not a great one. It doesn't sound like it. Other factors that lead to their decline, predation, of course. They're eaten by coyotes, badgers, bobcats, rattlesnakes, and many different birds of prey. The last one's important because... Studies have found that highways have hurt their population not just by habitat loss, but it actually provides an increased range of foraging habitat for these birds of prey because it gives them places to perch.
1: Yeah, okay, that makes sense.
0: And then they can also rely on roadkill as well, so they can just kind of post up along these highways. You're not, you don't have to be flying out in an open prairie all day.
1: It's like their version of a tree stand.
0: That's exactly it, yeah. Probably the biggest reason for their decline is because of their diets. So remember how I said they largely feed on prairie dogs about 90% of their diets? Yep. Well, when the prairie dogs die out, so do you. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. So to put it in perspective, these are small, active, predatory animals. Small, active predators actually tend to have some of the highest metabolisms relative to their size. Because not only do they need to eat a lot to move, but they're losing a lot more energy proportionally in the form of heat because they're so much smaller. Small things lose heat quickly. So they have to eat a lot. One study found that a mother ferret and her litter, usually three to five kits, require anywhere from 400 to 1,400 prairie dogs a year to survive.
1: So... On the one hand, that's a lot of prairie dogs. On the other hand, for the ferrets, that's literally a lifetime supply.
0: Yes. Now, this does vary by the species. There's a, uh, what, two main species of prairie dogs. And I think one's on the lower end It's like four to 700. And the other is like 800 to 1400. So there's a, a spectrum to it. But still, that, yeah. that's a lot. It's a lot of prairie dogs. Another thing to put this in perspective, the prairie dogs are actually often bigger than the ferrets. The ferrets really aren't that much bigger than the prairie dogs. So if we take the average weight of each and assume they're about the same and adjust it to a human scale with the average human weight, this is the same as a person requiring anywhere from 54,000 pounds of food to roughly 2 million pounds of food a year.
1: Oh my god, I can't think of anyone who would come even close to that unless they were on some kind of hard drug, like somebody on speed, maybe.
0: No one is coming close to that. That requires you eating more than your body weight of food every day.
1: I don't know, I feel like if you're on the right drugs, you might be able to come close, at least for one day.
0: (laughs) One day, maybe. (laughs) So, needless to say, these guys need a lot of prairie dogs to eat, which is why one of their nicknames is literally prairie dog hunters. I mean, I think they live up to it.
1: Yeah, and then some.
0: That being said, yeah, when the prairie dog suffers, so do the ferrets. It was also estimated that a mother ferret, in the same study, with a small litter, would require anywhere between 91 to 877 acres of prairie dog habitat to raise her young. Whoa. Again, this depends on the prairie dog species, but that's a very big number for a very small animal. It means they need that much land. Yeah, That much ideal habitat. Yeah, that's a lot. They can travel up to 11 miles in search of prairie dogs.
1: Wow, that's a lot of ground to cover for such a small animal.
0: So the prairie dog populations went down for similar reasons to the ferrets, mainly agricultural expansion. Typically, prairie dog habitat is great for rearing cattle. Yep. Prairie dogs are also susceptible to most of the same diseases as the ferrets, But a very big reason is that prairie dogs were considered agricultural pests by the farmers. So they were often hunted, trapped, and poisoned. And all of this probably had a bigger impact on the ferret's population than it did the prairie dogs.
1: Yeah, seems just pretty standard for any kind of uh, food pyramid, where uh, as an apex predator or a predator higher in, in the food chain, Any kind of change in your prey is going to have a much larger impact on you than it does on the population of your prey, just based on food availability.
0: And not to mention, they eat so many of these prairie dogs. It's not like they're just eating one or two a week. That as well. So when that number goes down just a little bit, it hits the fair. It's pretty hard. Not to mention, in case like poisoning, if you're poisoning your prairie dogs, well, The ferrets are going to get that too when they eat the prairie dog. Oh
1: yeah, yeah, I didn't even think about that.
0: By the late 1950s, black-footed ferrets were largely considered to be extinct. They just had too much going against them and no one had seen them in quite a long time. We get our first small miracle in 1964 where we found a small population in Mellet County, South Dakota. Biologists were able to study these ferrets for a few years and noticed their population was in decline. Largely for disease, I think in this case. So they brought nine ferrets into captivity with the hopes of breeding them. And unfortunately, they all died off. No young survived to adulthood.
1: Oh. Okay, That yeah, that's sad.
0: Yeah. So for years, these ferrets were considered extinct again. There were flyers and bounties put up. Actually, uh, up to a $10,000 reward for a live specimen. So it's not like no one was looking for them. That's a good incentive.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Assuming that people knew about it.
0: They're putting it up everywhere. They wanted their black-footed ferrets.
1: Wow, $10,000 for a ferret. That's kind of crazy.
0: Also, adjust that for inflation. This was, uh, what would it be, 60s, 70s? That's quite a big chunk of change right there.
1: Okay, hold on. Let me do the conversion real quick. Yeah, that's over $100,000 today.
0: Yeah, so I'd be looking for ferrets. Personally, that's just me. I'd be poking down every little hole.
1: Oh, yeah yeah i'd have my, i'd have a I'd have an excavator honestly looking for ferrets
0: <laughs> so again for years no luck. This all changed in nineteen eighty one when one was discovered in mititse, Wyoming. It was discovered by a ranch dog named Shep who brought a dead ferret home to his owners dropped it off on the front porch.
1: Oh what a good boy
0: uh, let me make it perfectly clear the evidence points to Shep finding the ferret dead. I don't think he killed the ferret himself. I'm pretty sure he was already like that. At least I hope it was. Yeah, I was about to say,
1: these ferrets already have to worry about coyotes, birds of prey, rattlesnakes, and God knows what else. And now Shep? That's too much. It's too much.
0: Well, I mean, imagine finding an animal that's been extinct for years and your dog brings it back dead. I'd be thinking, (laughs) buddy... You didn't do this, did you? (laughs) Well, it's extinct now. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, Shep has been described as a good boy, and I will not slander his good name. So I'm going with he found it dead.
1: Shep is the goodest
0: boy. It's a quote, any kid that brings a broken toy to you. It was like that when I found it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anyways, the couple brought the ferret because they weren't quite sure what it was. They brought it to a taxidermist who did recognize the ferret. Which is the second time a previously thought extinct species has been brought to a taxidermist. Throwback to the very first episode with the coelacanth. Yep. Yeah, they're doing the Lord's work. They really are. So the taxidermist reached out, scientists came, confirmed it was a black-footed ferret, and they were able to locate a population of about 130. Just in time to see them start dying off from disease. But this time they acted quicker. And they were able to capture 24 adults for captive breeding. Okay, nice. This program was launched in 87. From these 24 ferrets, we have about 600 offspring that have emerged from them to this day. About half in the wild and half in captivity. And I wish I could sum it up to just a single project. But it's not. It's really It's been an uphill battle for ferret conservation, but not an impossible one. And a good reason for this is because there's so many organizations involved. We have several zoos with breeding programs, many different projects with collaborations from federal government, state government, universities, landowners, farmers, tribes, nonprofits, and researchers.
1: Oh, yeah. That's the thing that people don't necessarily understand about a lot of these conservation efforts is that there's this idea going around that like the only entity that's involved in protecting a lot of these endangered species is the federal government and while the endangered species act is a huge part of that and in a lot of cases acts as the catalyst for these efforts these you know the these efforts are very very wide ranging and encompass a lot of different organizations across various states and even countries in some cases so they're very complicated
0: yeah, so it's kind of hard to sum it all up, but basically you need to know it involves a lot of parts. A lot of moving parts have to be incorporated into this. Right. But yeah, uh, involved many different organizations. We have captive breeding, carefully reintroducing the ferrets into the wild. I did find one sanctuary where they showed you how they acclimated the ferrets into being gradually more and more outdoors. So more naturalistic enclosures, less monitoring larger enclosures Okay. tracking the ferrets Uh, they have to keep a surplus of captive ferrets to release whenever the population dips stuff like that
1: gotcha and how long does it take for a captive ferret to acclimate to a more wild environment
0: i don't know especially given their lifespan i mean they got to do it quickly yeah they probably live much longer in captivity
1: true but they still got to be fast learners
0: it's probably a generational thing.
1: What do you mean? You
0: know, maybe, like, maybe you can't adapt to the outside, but maybe your kids can. Mm-hmm. So maybe there's like intermediate phases.
1: Okay. So what you're telling me is that adapting to the wild for the ferrets is kind of like humans adapting to TikTok. You can't do it, but your kids
0: are going to be great at it. Oh, <laughs> your kids are going to be great because they're given a phone at six weeks old. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Pretty much. You'd think they would have learned something. I will say, unlike several other endangered species, there wasn't much of a pushback on the ferrets themselves. So, a lot of carnivore mammals, like wolves, being reintroduced, there's usually a pushback from that. Why people don't really want wolves near them, which I I can understand. If you're a farmer, you want to protect your livestock. If you have kids, you know, you don't want them to be pounced on by a wolf on their way to the school. Yeah. But the, the ferrets themselves don't really pose a risk to anyone. The issue came with the prairie dogs. Yeah, they're still a nuisance to farmers. And they still have to manage these prairie dogs. Will affect their livelihoods. But the ferrets need these prairie dogs as a food source. So you kind of have to stabilize the prairie dogs, and then the ferrets can thrive. Which is why, even though the prairie dog range is massive, There's only a select amount of areas where the black-footed ferrets can also thrive.
1: That makes sense, but it's also a little counterintuitive in that you would have thought that the farmers would have loved the ferrets given how well they control prairie dog populations. Like, why do you need to shoot and or poison the prairie dogs when you can just release a bunch of turbocharged stretch cats into your fields and take care of the prairie dogs that way? You know what I mean?
0: Well, at the same time, imagine someone from the federal government comes up to you and says, hey, we have a way to control your prairie dog population. It's just going to take 10 years to get established. And you're kind of thinking, "Okay, I need enough money to survive another year. I I can't wait 10 years down the line.
1: That's fair. That's fair. But like not thinking necessarily about the present day, I'm thinking about like a century or two ago. You know what I mean? When like we were really cutting into the prairie dog population and by extension, cutting into the ferret population, you would have thought somebody would have been like, Oh, we can just keep the ferrets around and control the prairie dogs that way.
0: Well, I mean, I gotta admit it's a lot more efficient to just poison the prairie dogs. It is more efficient. It's not great for everything else, but I mean, if you want to get it done overnight. Yeah. I mean, that'll do it. And this is where the pushback comes from because you have to appeal to both farmers And at the same time, maintain these prairie dogs, so find a way for everyone to coexist. Sometimes these two processes don't always merge well together. An example is that the Forestry Service would actually poison prairie dogs for farmers. The idea is to do it in the most controlled way possible to prevent it from affecting all the other wildlife. And at the same time, other agencies would be trying to reintroduce the ferrets to these areas. (laughs) And I even read where there was a tribe where they had both of these agencies doing this at the same time on their land. And it just hurt everything like nothing succeeded in the end. It's just a massive waste of money.
1: Yeah, got to love government efficiency, don't you?
0: So it is a balancing act. Moving forward, the two main issues will be disease still. I mean, that's not going to solve itself overnight. And finding a balance in maintaining prey dog populations. Right. We do have some advances with the disease. There's actually vaccinations for ferrets now. Some people will actually treat prairie dog burrows with pesticides that will kill off fleas because fleas will transmit a lot of these disease. So mm. it kind of kills it off right there doesn't spread to the prairie dog, and thus it doesn't spread to the ferret.
1: Hmm, well that's handy.
0: As of now, the population is slowly rebounding. The ferrets are still rated as endangered, but that's a big step up from being extinct. Currently, there are anywhere from 300 to 1,000 ferrets in the wild. It depends on the estimate, plus many more captive populations that are across, uh, they're in zoos across the world. A lot of zoos have the black-footed ferrets, and they have breeding programs for them.
1: Yeah, it's good to reiterate that endangered is far better than extinct, because for me personally, like no matter how bad life gets, it's better than being dead.
0: It's easy to breed them in captivity, because there's actually several animals that are considered extinct in the wild, but have very large captive populations. One example is the axolotl. It's actually a popular pet. They are fundamentally extinct in the wild. Some estimates say that they are just critically endangered. But the captive population is significantly larger than their wild population ever was because they're popular in captivity. So they're still surviving in some sense. And maybe one day we can take some captive populations and reintroduce them. It's a backup plan. Yeah. Yeah, that would be cool. Yeah, we might not have the habitat for them now, but we can maintain them in captivity for a couple generations. And hopefully later we will. Yeah, yeah. Just keeping them on hold. True. I mean, it's also and it's also
1: convenient that they do well in captivity because that really helps reintroduce their populations. Like, I know that that's an issue with other endangered species where they can't necessarily do that. For whatever reason, they just don't do very well in captivity. Mm-hmm. So they have to either specially design habitat for them or like specially designed their breeding programs, which they wouldn't normally have to do if the animal involved actually was more conducive to a captive environment. The main example there that I think of are whipping cranes. So like the whipping cranes, they would imprint on people and they wouldn't think that they were actually cranes, which made them useless for reintroducing (laughs) into the wild. So they had to like keep people away from the baby whipping cranes by any means possible. And, like, when they would feed them, they'd have to use, like, these crazy little, like, puppets of whooping crane heads. (laughs) And when they were trying to teach them to fly, they had these, these like, researchers running around with the crane chicks, like, generously be described as ghost costumes with bird heads. (laughs) (laughs) Just, like, flapping their arms around trying to show the chicks how to fly.
0: That guy probably had a great day. (laughs) Honestly, it it looked like a lot of fun
1: and it looks ridiculous and i and we laugh about it but it was legitimately successful but obviously with the ferrets you wouldn't have to go through something like that which is convenient
0: i saw i read somewhere that i believe it was a whooping crane but it might have been another large wading bird species and it sort of accepted a zookeeper as its mate and they took advantage of this where they no he did, he did bang the bird but artificial insemination And then the bird would raise what it thought was the zookeeper's eggs. Like it thought that was her mate. Kind of just helped her along with the process. Huh. Okay. I guess it was more emotional support than anything. Yeah. A lot of captive populations of these in zoos across the world. And in 2020, the first ferret was actually cloned. Really? We had a ferret named Elizabeth Ann was cloned from a female named Willa, and Willa died in the 80s. This was actually one of the first ferrets that was brought into captivity. Willa didn't have any offspring of her own, but this one clone has three times the genetic diversity of any living ferret today because Willa didn't have any descendants. So simply an act like this just introduces so much diversity into the gene pool.
1: Yes, which is also very important for rebuilding populations
0: very much so the ferrets are not doing fantastic but they have a lot of good people looking out for them and they've shown some great progress especially for an animal that was thought to be extinct twice yeah so i'm not gonna lie and say they're doing amazing but they're on their way back so like i said there's been a lot of great conservation work for these ferrets but in my perspective and you kind of touched on this a little bit there's a good way to prevent them from ever becoming endangered. What if we domesticated them? Fair. Yeah. So ferrets, like the ferret you find in a pet store, is actually the domestic form of the European polecat. These were domesticated thousands of years ago for hunting small game like rabbits or moles. So I just wonder if back in the 1800s, what if someone got the same idea? and said, hey, let's domesticate one of these. Yeah, The main pushback for their conservation is farmers hate prairie dogs, so imagine you have the perfect prairie dog killing machine that is cheap to maintain, won't harm your crops or poison your livestock. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's why a lot of farmers keep dogs on their property, so that the dogs can scare away coyotes.
0: I don't think this could happen now due to the cost and the risk. I mean, each ferret is probably worth a lot of money there's not a lot of them you don't want to just give it to some farmer and say all right here you go but i wish someone got the idea a long time ago
1: yeah yeah that would have made things a lot better for the ferrets now
0: and one more thing to mention completely unrelated this was like a wikipedia rabbit hole for me ferret legging used to be an activity i'm not calling it a sport an activity that was popular in particular amongst Yorkshire miners for decades. And you can kind of put two and two together. It involves contestants putting live ferrets down their trousers and seeing who can keep them in the longest. There's no way the contestants
1: were sober during this.
0: <laughs> I mean, they were miners. They probably had a rough day at work.
1: And the solution to this was to stick a ferret down your pants?
0: No, I'm willing to bet there's some whiskey involved. So like I said they had a rough day at work.
1: <laughs> so not only am I going to go work my ass off in a mine and then like you know come come out of that sore, tired and with lungs full of coal dust, but when I'm done with my day I'm also going to have ferret scratches all over my balls now.
0: It's been described as, quote, simply an ability to have your tool bitten and not care. The former champion, he actually was a minor. His name was Reg Meller, and he held the record for years. He tried to top six hours, which he described as the four minute mile. <laughs> but he did it at an event. The audience was so bored. Wait, here's the other thing, too.
1: You said these ferrets have like crazy appetites, don't they?
0: No, these were uh, these were not black-footed ferrets. These are just regular ferrets. Oh, so the, domestic r- ones. the
1: regular domestic ferrets have lower metabolisms?
0: Oh, they got to. Otherwise, you know how expensive it would be to feed them?
1: Yeah, I guess that makes sense. I'm just wondering what the ferret ate while it was in this guy's pants.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Uh, And like I said, at the five hour mark, the audience was so bored. They all began to leave and the crew started to disassemble the stage and he retired soon after that. (laughs) He apparently offered a hundred dollar reward to anyone that could beat his record and just no one took him up on it because no one really cared.
1: No one wanted to do that. That's how you know it's not a sport, because in a sport... It's not a flex if the audience leaves like halfway through your
0: activity. <laughs> the poor guy was heartbroken after it. <laughs> yeah, it's been described as a dying sport. There was an attempt. Oh, gee, to introduce- I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> there was an attempt to introduce a women's version involving shirts called ferret busting," but that was unsuccessful. Again, I wonder
1: why. <laughs> Sounds like a terrible idea.
0: The last National Ferret Legging event was actually held in Richmond, Virginia in 2009. There hasn't been one since. 2009? This is around yeah, until I... 2009? I guess there's nothing else going on. Man, how
1: boring is Richmond?
0: I mean, that was the National Ferret Legging. I There might have been local ones. <laughs> Uh, anyways, I don't think ferret legging has really contributed to the decline of the black-footed ferrets. Uh, this thing, it was just too weird to not include. Oh, yeah, I know. I mean, I'm glad I know
1: about that, but I definitely didn't need to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God.
0: And that's my piece.
1: Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, I, I knew a little bit about the black-footed ferrets, but not that much detail. Like, they're definitely one of the more iconic endangered species, at least here in the United States.
0: Mm -hmm. I felt that they need to be talked about. And this is also, like, the first proper mammal. No, I did a hippo. I don't talk about mammals too often, so.
1: No, no, you don't. It's nice to
0: give it a go. All right, my turn? Yep, what you got for me.
1: Okay, so naturally, when you wanted to talk about a species that came back from the brink, I wanted to talk about a bird. I know you're shocked about that but the the rather unfortunate thing was that the two species which come to mind for me when talking about bird conservation success are number 1 the bald eagle which would have been so completely basic that you'd probably stop recording and tell me to pick another topic
0: that is the conservation success story like i know the ferret is a more common one but i don't think too many people know about it outside of like a scientific community yeah. but everyone knows about the eagle
1: right Right. Like, there's no way I was going to talk about the bald eagle on this podcast. And the other was the peregrine falcon, which I've already discussed on this show. So I did a bit more thinking, and I thought of another species. Not only has it come back from the brink, but it's also pretty unique. And that bird is the Kirtland's warbler. Do you know about this one at all?
0: No, not at all. So it should be in for a treat.
1: Okay. As far as conservation stories go, it's... Fairly well-known, but again, kind of like the ferret, if you're not in an ornithology circle, much less like a general scientific circle, or much less outside the world of biology completely, you know, it's it's not as well-known. Bit of background here. The Kirtland's Warbler is a migratory songbird belonging to the family Perlidae, which includes the other North American warblers. Uh, and a few other species like Redstarts and Chats. There are small, there are these tiny little songbirds that mainly feed on insects and trees. They have a tendency to hop around and they sing really pretty songs and birders love warblers. But the Kirtland's warbler in particular is mostly gray and white on their upper bodies with some dark streaks on their sides and these bright yellow bellies. And they feed on insects in the lower branches of trees. They will sometimes engage in what's known as fly catching behavior where they're trying to catch airborne insects. And during the wintertime, they eat a lot more fruits and berries. Upon first appearance, they don't really look that special. They look pretty similar to a lot of other warbler species. And their behaviors and feeding habits are also pretty similar to a lot of the other species in this group. So you might be wondering why this particular species became critically endangered when the others in this species, while a lot of them are declining, were not hit nearly as badly. The unique aspect of the Kirtland's warbler that caused their decline would be their breeding habits. Specifically, the areas in which they chose to breed. Or they choose to
0: breed. Mm. Let me guess, it happened to be rich in oil? No. No, that's actually some not Some sort it. of natural resource. That is not it at all. Or some guy just happened to build a house on top of it.
1: <laughs> Again, nope. The Kirtland's Warbler is an extreme specialist species, a phrase which usually guarantees that the species will be on an endangered species list somewhere, because those are the particular species that aren't able to adapt to extreme change brought on by human activity.
0: A good example. I just talked about one. Black-footed ferrets, when you mainly eat prairie dogs and the prairie dogs decline, you go with them.
1: Right. Exactly. In the case of the Kirtland's Warbler, they nest in a very specific place, That place being young jack pine forest. And they are also ground nesters. Again, a trait that is shared by many at-risk bird species because humans introduce a lot of ground predators that love to eat bird eggs. Things like mice, rats, even cats.
0: My thought with that is that birds that are ground nesters either A, live in a habitat that is really not suitable for nesting in trees. Or B, they're just exploiting a niche that no other bird is using, and it's like, that's their only way they can survive, is no one else wants this spot.
1: Right. It's more the latter, but the other aspect, too, is that sometimes it's not necessarily that they can't nest in the trees, it's that they're occupying a habitat that makes it better to nest on the ground, actually, either because their habitat doesn't doesn't really have any trees, or because those trees are really small or because it's just easier to hide the nest on the ground than it is to hide it in a tree so there are a lot of different reasons birds wind up nesting on the ground nowadays when they do they have much lower nesting success rates Hmm. unfortunately
0: i know uh what is i believe it's called a kill deer yes Are are they the ones that nest in gravel my uncle gets one in his driveway every year and they put up a traffic cone so people don't run into it. He's got a long gravel driveway.
1: Well, killdeer actually have adapted very well to humans, unlike a lot of other shorebirds. For one thing, they're year-round residents. They don't migrate. And for another, they aren't as bothered by people. So they'll wind up nesting in fields or gravel driveways or random open areas that people create. And so they've kind of moved into those specific habitats in a way that other shorebirds haven't. They're able to nest in and amongst people in addition to their more natural habitat. So they're an example of a species that's doing well around people. But I digress. For the Kirtland's warbler and for these young jack pine stands, the shrubby nature of these trees really effectively hides them from predators. So if they were to nest in the tree, their nest would actually be more visible and therefore more accessible. The other thing too is that these young jack pine stands that the warblers choose to nest in are only about 5 to 20 feet high. So even if they chose to nest in some of these trees, that wouldn't provide much of an advantage from ground predators. Right? Because they're still not Mm -hmm. that high off the ground. So at that point, you might as well just try to hide the nest as effectively as possible, in which case, just nest on the ground. Without these young trees, the warblers really wouldn't have any habitat and therefore no place to nest. Yeah, a lot like your ferrets. And so, without the trees, and without anywhere to breed, the warblers disappear from the landscape. So, what happened to the young jack pine stands? Well, the main phenomena which creates these large swaths of young jack pine trees is fire. So, the fire causes the pine cones to open up and ver- relatively rapidly and release their seeds, and then this allows new trees to grow after a forest fire has burned through a whole landscape. So right after the forest gets cleared through by the fire, these seeds are released and the pine trees start growing. And when the pine trees start growing, this creates new habitat for the warblers. And jack pines are relatively fast-growing trees, so they're well positioned to take advantage of the lack of competition from other trees in the landscape. You know, they don't have to deal with these big oak trees or chestnuts or things like that that get in the way of their growth. So they're definitely more opportunistic amongst trees. And so it makes a lot of sense for the Kirtland's warbler to take advantage of these young jack pine stands and evolve to specialize in this particular relatively limited habitat because it's not being used by a a lot of their other species. Right? It'll basically allow them to carve out their own little niche where they kind of wind up following forest fires around. For this reason, though, their populations were always small and they were always pretty sporadic in their uh, dispersion. They really, like, their populations varied somewhat depending on. What areas had been burned through recently and where these young jack pine stands were. As people started to have more of an effect on the landscape, we started to employ a lot of fire suppression techniques, which prevented a lot of forest fires, you know, with Smokey the Bear and all these other things. So as a result, the young jack pine stands started to disappear and the Kirtland's warblers went with them. So that's the main factor. The other one which did play a role were the brown-headed cowbirds. So these birds are nest parasites, which lay their eggs in the nests of other birds. Their young grow more quickly than the other chicks that are already in the nest. So they outcompete the other chicks in the nest and get fed by the parents more. And so they basically dramatically reduce the nesting success of the host birds, which is why they're called nest parasites. So Cowbirds really hadn't lived alongside Kirtland's warblers, but the cowbirds' range expanded through the clear-cutting of forests. So, in areas where the cowbirds are more prevalent, the bird species have evolved to recognize their eggs when they're laid in their nests, and they actually remove those eggs and destroy them. But, when the cowbirds are introduced to new areas, those birds don't really know to recognize those eggs, and so they wind up just raising these cowbird chicks instead of their own chicks, really. And this happened a lot to the Kirtland's warbler as the cowbirds' range expanded. This was definitely a factor in their decline, but still less impactful than the habitat loss. The the lack of jack pine stands was really the main factor here. Um, And so with these two factors combined, population surveys indicated that there were as few as 167 breeding pairs left in the united states in the 1970s and early 1980s and so because of these low numbers the kirtland's warbler was in fact an inaugural member of the endangered species act in 1973 they've mostly been on it ever since i say mostly i'll get to that a little later
0: they have one good year (laughs) 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 or do we think they died out for a bit
1: uh no no we've known they were always around it wasn't like the ferrets where they were maybe extinct or maybe not extinct. We knew that there were Kirtland's warblers,
0: but the year that they did well, was that just a year with like a lot of California gender reveals? (laughs) (laughs) Lots of wildfires brought back their habitat.
1: Okay. So for one thing, these birds are native to Michigan, not California, uh, at least in the summer and their winter grounds are in the Bahamas. But uh, I'll get to what, why they were off of the Endangered Species Act. All in good time. So, as for the recovery, though, the solution, as it turned out, was to recreate these young Jack Pine stands for the Kirtland's Warblers. And so, while some of this was done through controlled burns, most other times... The other
0: was gender reveals. (laughs) (laughs) The other was just one pyromaniac who really wanted to volunteer for it. Guy single-handedly brought back half the habitat.
1: Yeah, much like much like Oversimplified, we just released Jimmy the arsonist onto the forests of northern <laughs> Michigan. And that brought back the, the warblers like crazy. In all seriousness, though, really we mimicked the effects of forest fires by clear-cutting forests and then replanting those areas with jack pines. So, essentially, we used logging to mimic a forest fire, which gave the warblers some usable breeding habitat. The other thing we did was mitigate cowbirds. So, we trapped the cowbirds and sterilized them, which obviously prevented them from laying eggs in the warbler nests. And together, these efforts were hugely successful. They eventually raised the population population, to 1,000 breeding pairs by 2001 which was the target level, and now the the population is at roughly 2,300 breeding pairs overall. The species was officially removed from the endangered species list in 2019. So that's why I say mostly on the endangered species list because as of very recently they're no longer an endangered species. That's not quite where this story ends. Because what was interesting about the Kirkland's warbler was that it became something of a standard bearer for this type of early successional habitat that has really been eliminated with, you know, human forest management practices. Because normally you have these forest fires that burn through and that creates this kind of intermediate habitat that a lot of animals really like to take advantage of. And this habitat is thick with ferns and blueberry bushes, in addition to just the jack pines. So it was used by uh, other birds like kestrels and upland sandpipers, in addition to other songbird species, as well as large mammals like black bears and badgers. So without the efforts to protect the, the warblers, these other species would be in far worse shape the other aspect of ecology that this really speaks to is the idea that ecological succession is a very productive part of ecosystems so basically ecosystems are most productive with just a little bit of chaos right an ecosystem which is allowed to fully mature is often less productive at the end of that maturation process than one that experiences occasional catastrophes because the one that is undergoing some kind of ecological succession has a lot more organisms living in it. Whereas once it's fully matured, every organism has kind of carved out its own niche and there aren't as many species living there. So it's less productive overall. And so basically, by having to protect the Kirtland's warbler, we kind of forced ecological succession onto these forests, really. This also speaks to why the Endangered Species Act can be such an effective conservation tool because people think that it just protects random species that have low populations, but in a lot of cases, it helps protect entire habitats. The Kirtland's Warbler was the target species, but the efforts to protect the Kirtland's Warbler benefited a whole host of other species that otherwise would have been in serious decline. So that's why the Endangered Species Act kind of gets misconstrued sometimes in its full effects And effectiveness aren't necessarily understood by most people. All of this leads us to the future of the Kirtland's Warbler, which I think is arguably the most fascinating aspect of this species. This particular bird is interesting to discuss because it will probably always require some amount of human intervention to maintain its population. In other words, it is reliant on conservation efforts. Or conservation reliant is the official term. So if we stop carrying out controlled burns and clear cutting and keep employing our current smoky the bear approach to forest fires, the Kirtland's warb- warbler population will likely return to where it was in the 1970s and 1980s because they won't have anywhere to nest. And so this is what happens when we push species like this to extinction. We are then responsible for their recovery, however long that takes. There's a really great quote from a biologist who worked on the Kirtland's warbler, which is It's like walking into an antique shop. You break it and it's yours. And that's the attitude that a lot of people have around endangered species. And I think that's honestly has a lot of merit, right? We're the ones who kind of wrecked these ecosystems. And so you could easily argue that we then have a responsibility to repair them. The Kirtland's warbler also faces threats from climate change. So as temperatures warm, its ideal habitat will move to higher and higher latitudes, which could affect conservation efforts. Furthermore, the island habitats in the Bahamas, where they winter, are relatively close to sea level, meaning that they could be at risk from sea level rise.
0: Yeah, that's never good.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so all of this is to say, the removal of the Kirtland's warbler from the endangered species list sounds great. But it also could be viewed as a concerning development. Because despite the fact that the population has recovered, the loss of that status could potentially mean that it doesn't receive the same resources and protection status that has enabled its habitat to recover. So without the same efforts, the warbler could start to decline again. But luckily... There are state and local organizations that are prepared to continue providing habitat for the Kirtland's warbler for the foreseeable future. In doing so, keep keeping this early successional habitat alive and going. Though it may be a conservation reliant species, it could really show us a way to more sustainably cut forests and protect the species that live there. So that's my piece.
0: Well, really cool. Yeah, who would have thought? Forest fires actually help some species out. Yeah, yeah, I know. do will burn down a forest. <laughs> okay? do The warblers will thank you. Okay, don't do that. I would like to go
1: on record <laughs> as being against that. But in a controlled way, yeah, those forest fires can be really, really helpful.
0: You'd be surprised with how much wildlife conservation a jug of kerosene can produce. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't, don't down a forest. It's a joke for legal reasons.
1: That sounds like a quote from Fahrenheit 451.
0: (laughs) Yeah, very well could be.
1: Yeah, I think the idea of a conservation reliant species is a really, really, is a really interesting one because the conservation efforts for these species have proven to be really successful. We've been able to bring these species back from the brink, but still have to put in those same efforts to keep them around. The counter argument there is, well, is it really worth it? And in the case of the Kirtland's Warbler, I would say it absolutely is, because protecting the Kirtland's Warbler and keeping the Kirtland's Warbler around benefits a whole host of other species, and it really protect and really makes the forest a lot more productive. It's just an interesting thing to consider, like the species, a lot of times we think of rebuilding these populations, and then eventually nature's going to kick back in and we're going to have to, and we're going to let them off the endangered species list and they'll be fine on their own your adult child moving out of the house and being able to function on their own, when in reality, a lot of these species are going to keep living in our basement for a while. And maybe maybe we want them there. Who knows? That's the Kirtland's Warbler.
0: Oh, really cool.
1: So, with that being finished, do you have any proposals for the next episode?
0: Uh, I had a list. Do you have any ideas? I feel like I've picked the last couple.
1: Yes. So, we did an episode on pets, but I would like to broaden that a bit, or maybe talk more specifically about human animal partnerships.
0: Human animal, what would we call it? Um, is this just like a domestic animal episode? No,
1: no, no, no. This is this is human like uh, mutualistic relationships between humans and wild animals that aren't domesticated at all. So I guess they're like, or maybe they're like half domesticated.
0: Was so- call it called like furry friends? <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: maybe. I would say I wouldn't say friends. I'd say more like workplace acquaintances.
0: <laughs> the workplace acquaintance episode. That's uh, that's what we're gonna do. <laughs> we'll we'll come up with a different title for it. But I I see what you're going.
1: Yeah, yeah. I can think of something. So, And for anyone who thinks that sounds boring, it's actually going to be a lot more entertaining because these aren't pets. These are just straight wild animals that humans have mutualistic relationships with or have had in the past. I got a good one for this.
0: Okay, I got nothing. So I got to figure something out.
1: All right. But uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing what you come up with. So with that decided, you want to take us out?
0: If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a like or review on your podcast app of choice. If you have a suggestion for a future episode, you can reach us at soup pot podcast on X or the primordial soup pot at gmail.com.
1: Sounds good. And until next time, I'm Rustin. And I'm Aaron. See ya.